welcome back to the Renaissance Times. This is uh, part of our ongoing series on Leonardo da Vinci, and we're very honoured today to have a very special guest, Curtis Wong. Curtis has uh, long involvement in Leonardo da Vinci. In particular, he worked with Bill Gates on the digitization and presentation of the Codex Lester that Bill bought back in the mid-90s. But apart from that, an amazing career involving CD-ROMs and uh, the Criterion Collection and the Worldwide Telescope, decades at Microsoft Research, coming up with patents on all sorts of incredible things. So we're very uh, happy to have Curtis Wong joining us for a chat today. Welcome to our little show, Curtis. Hey, thanks, Cameron and Ray. Good to see you both. Thank you. Good to see you too, sir. Coming to us from Seattle, Washington, where this time of the year it should be lovely, I think, from memory. It's spectacular this week. The first place I ever saw snow was in Seattle. Mm. I was driving around in a limousine on Microsoft's dime, had, the, had some guests <laughs> from Australia, some senior executives from, I think, Telstra, I was uh, hosting at, a, at an event in Seattle and uh, opened, up the, opened up the roof on the limo and the snow was coming in. I think the limo driver was happy about that. But <laughs> it was exciting. Yeah, I love Seattle. Nice. It's pretty. Um, so, Curtis, why don't we go back? Uh, before we get to Da Vinci, let's go back and do a, a quick retrospective of your career because there are many great stories and many great highlights that we want to touch upon. Uh, what was your, what was your education in, or no, before that, where did you grow up? Did you grow up in Seattle? No, I grew up in uh, Silver Lake in Los Angeles. Los Angeles, right. And sort of the origins of Hollywood. Yeah, right. And so what was your, studio what, nearby. what was your educational background? I uh, went to UCLA and got a degree in environmental science. And have you put that to good use uh, recently? Uh, I learned all about bark beetles for my thesis. <laughs> good. <laughs> no, I haven't used it recently. Right. So uh, what, what happened after you graduated? How did you end up? I mean, I, I, I'm sure most of the people listening to this are, um, remember CD-ROMs. I remember when CD-ROMs were the hottest thing yes. before the internet. Remember when Encarta came out oh, and uh, wiped out Encyclopedia Britannica, pretty much. Um, well, but you, so you were had some involvement in CD-ROMs. But what did what did you do straight after uni? Well, after that, I uh, was looking for a job, and I found an opportunity with a company called uh, the Voyager Company, which uh, was the name of an interactive media company, something fairly new. And the other side of the company was uh, called the Criterion Collection. And if you're a movie fan, mm -hmm. uh, the Criterion Collection is kind of the top of the top of the mountain in terms of quality and the nature of the experience and the fidelity. Yeah. So uh, that was something because I, I had purchased uh, a Laserdisc player and bought a number of Laserdiscs, and then the Criterion discs were always the best. And so... I thought, hmm, I'll go check them out and see if they needed any help. And I came, and it turned out to be at a time when they really needed adult supervision. And uh, so they hired me. <laughs> they had a big interest in bark beetles, did they? Uh, no, that, that I didn't bring that up when I applied for that job. <laughs> so what year are we talking about here? Uh, we're talking about um, 19... 
89. So right about when Laserdiscs were kind of at their peak, just before they realized they were too big, too expensive, and too heavy. Right. So uh, interactive media back then was hot. It was very hot. Yes, it was. We were doing CD-ROMs before almost anybody else. I did the first... um, Multimedia CD-ROM for Windows, which was Multimedia Beethoven, and uh, also the first kids CD-ROM, too, and another CD-ROM on a photographer named Pedro Meyer, and uh, he's a brilliant photographer, and it was sort of the first CD-ROM that was actually played on television. It sounds really crazy that you would do something like that, but that was that was a big deal back then. Yeah. The whole idea that you could fit all of this information onto a disc and make it interactive was a big deal back in the day. Pre-internet, mm-hmm. that was it. Yeah. That was where we got yeah. everything from. I remember when I first got in Carter, and I guess when Windows 95 came out, just spending countless hours. It was like the Wikipedia of the day. I just spent countless hours going down rabbit holes and in Carter. It was it was fantastic. <laughs> yes. Mind blowing for a click. for a nerd right. <laughs> just to have that in front of you at the time. Yeah. Right. So talk talk to us about uh, what you did at Voyager. Uh, was it was your work mostly with Criterion Collection, or did you do other stuff as well? I did both. I did the uh, CD-ROM side for Multimedia Beethoven, and um, but I I really loved the film side, and so I started producing a number of titles for them. So one of my favorites I saw was coming up was uh, the opportunity to uh, do Jason and the Argonauts. Wow. And, uh, and, uh, Harry Housen. Yeah. I'm a big fan. And, uh, you know, so I, I, I managed to snag that project first and I went and met Ray and we spent a lot of time together, brought out all of his stuff from the garage and, and he also had, uh, you know, the models were actually uh, at somebody else's house, and we went there. So I'd, everything from the flying saucers from uh, Earth versus the Flying Saucers to the skeletons, you name it, all the, kinds of things. From the marching things. skeletons <laughs> with, their, with all their battle yeah. gear on? That's amazing. What, yeah. was, what was he like, yeah. Harryhausen? He was just uh, a terrific person, super nice Um we, we I spent a lot of time trying to get the best rendition of the film. So I went back, and the original negative was not in that good of shape, but we had a couple of uh, interpositives that I sort of picked and choose from to, to come up with one really high-quality print. And so we used that. And then the audio was pretty old, so it started shedding. You, you guys know about that kind of stuff, you know. You, you probably have to bake it to kind of stabilize it. But we then brought it all back together. And um, and it was really, it really came together really well. On that title, I did the first Easter egg on a laser disc. Wow. Which, which nobody knew about because I, I put it after the color bars. And if you waited, there was this little uh, <laughs> board that came up and said, if you're a big fan of Ray, uh, Ray Harryhausen, you know, stay tuned afterwards. So then there was this uh, clip, which I had a full frame view of when um, Harryhausen is setting up the table with the skeletons, you know, and uh, you could see everything. The whole setup, frame by frame. Wow. So you invented Easter eggs. <laughs> yeah, for, I invented Easter eggs on LaserDisc. Nobody else, I think, ever did another one like that. Even that's more fantastic. valuable. Yeah. Yes. Well, that's 
I think that's probably out of all your achievements, the thing you'll most be remembered for, the Easter egg. (laughs) Well, one thing that I was really proud of is when I finished uh, Jason on the Laserdisc, uh, Ray and Charles Schneer, the producer, called me from London and they said, Curtis, you know, I was at the Voyager and at lunch or something sitting there on cell phone. They said, Curtis, the version you did of Jason and the Argonauts, you made it look better than it did on the first day of release wow. in the theater. I go, wow. Thank wow. you. <laughs> that was really. Wow. So then, you know, later on, Ray became a good friend. And so I would go visit him at his house in London whenever I'd get into town and we'd talk about stuff. I brought my wife there. She got to go check out the skeletons and, you know, all these other, you, you know, like there was a flood in Earth versus the Flying Saucers. The saucers are only about six inches in diameter as a miniature. But the reason why it was six inches was because that's how big his dad's lathe was to be able to <laughs> to, to uh, cover them out from. So for, for people under the age of 50 uh, watching yeah. this, we should probably explain who Ray Harryhausen was. He was like one of the inventors of special effects on films, right? Stop motion animation. Yeah. yeah. So, if, you know, if, you, if you've seen the behind the scenes of the making of Star Wars or The Empire Strikes Back, I saw a video the other day of the Lucasfilm mm-hmm. people doing stop motion animation for Empire Strikes Back with the AT-ATs yep. walking along. That's exactly. Ray Harryhausen created that feel pretty much. Wow. Yeah. Yeah. Curtis, astounding. I mean, I just have to ask because your background, your degree was in one thing. Was this something that you were just drawn to? Did you just kind of pick it up as you went, or did you feel that you had a knack for it, or was it just all enthusiasm just carrying you along? It was enthusiasm and opportunity. Okay. That's amazing. Okay. <laughs> yeah, I feel extremely lucky. I mean, I worked on the on the Bond films, uh, Goldfinger and wow. uh, Doctor No. And, wow, uh, those are crazy stories related to those films. If you if you see DVDs today and they talk about, there's always this sort of message that comes up. You know, the commentary on this on this film is you know only from uh, you know basically it's right. a disclaimer mm-hmm. about what people are saying. And the reason why I think that appears is because when we did the Bond films, um, especially after Goldfinger. Um, apparently all the people that worked on the film signed an NDA that they were not allowed to release any secrets about how the Bond films were made. So as a result, after we did the films, we got a 27-page fax from the Broccoli Brothers who said, you know, you can't can't share any of this stuff. You know, you have to stop making these uh, laserdiscs with that commentary on it because they're secret. And um, so we had to stop selling the Goldfinger disc, which is now, if you can find one, it's probably worth a mint. Wow. Um, and um, I think the rest of the studios then, you know, said, oh, I guess we're going to have to put up that message saying, not us. <laughs> it was the guys yeah. that said it. And so these days, studios have an entire second crew going around shooting behind the scenes stuff. It's the irony. Yeah. You know, that's a whole other income stream for them is the behind the scenes sure. making Extra of it. But back hours. then, they were. Yeah. yeah. Crazy. Back then, they were still thinking people didn't, you didn't want people to see how the sausage was made, right? Yeah. Now everybody wants to know. Yeah. Oh, the magic. I spend, I spend more time watching behind the scenes stuff of films. Yeah. Then I spend actually watching the actual films. 
You watch, you watch a two-hour yeah. film and then you spend eight hours watching interviews about the making of the film. It's crazy. Yeah. So talk to us about some of the other, you know, the highlights of your time at Criterion, working on the Criterion Collection. Who else did you meet? Well, partly because I worked on Jason, I got invited uh, to Weta because Peter Jackson is a huge Bond fan and he really wanted a copy of Goldfinger, which he knew was, like, very difficult to find. And so I, I brought one to him when I went to Weta. He took me through uh, all of Weta, and then he has a, a warehouse for his minis. And the, by the minis, I mean it's basically all the miniature, actual uh, miniatures for the Lord of the Rings films. Right. So I got to see all of that stuff. I saw the the ship from King Kong. I said, you know, the, I have pictures of the tower. Oh. You know? Wow. I mean, all of this stuff really crazy. Did you see wonderful. Did you see a miniature of Ray? Because it's a little known fact, Ray is actually the template for all of the hobbits. Yes. He's only three feet tall. <laughs> and I never tried. And he's covered in hair. Yeah, I never tried. <laughs> no, well, no. There's a bronze statue of Ray in the cafeteria at Weta. Yeah. And then there's posters <laughs> of, of Ray's films. Yeah, it's a full it's a full size statue of Ray, but you step over it as you walk in <laughs> to your <laughs> completely unnecessary. We completely Ray Ray is yeah. short. Yeah. Um Oh, Peter Jackson, he seems like a lovely guy. He seems like a just big, passionate bear who loves, teddy bear who loves making movies. Yeah, you know, you know it's funny, you know, there's a screening room and uh, they said, yeah, this is this is Peter's seat. They said, how do you know? He says, well, you know, that's he likes to eat ice cream. And so they just like, oh, ice cream there, they tear you can tell that's Peter's seat. That's how I mark my territory, with ice cream, yes. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Well, one, one thing I asked to see, I said, hey, can you uh, – can I see Sting? You know, so they said, mm. so they went out and brought the uh, the hero, the hero prop. You know, the actual right. sword. Wow! So, it, it, and then they they also brought out one of the uh, uh, replicas, and it was like one night and day. The real Sting is amazing. Wow. It's so beautiful, and, and the and the replica one i think it costs hundreds of dollars it's not even close so you're not talking about the uh, bass player and songwriter for the police there i thought they might have had him uh backstage what if, i'm not a lord of the rings nerd what's <laughs> what is sting sting is the sword that frodo oh. had that lit up whenever yes. orcs blue right it lit up blue blue exactly you start seeing yes. the blue part yes. of the right very right. important okay yeah yeah, apparently. Yeah. I don't even remember Frodo yeah. having a sword, so there you oh, go. Oh, he That's, did. And it was, I think I fell asleep during no, that part of the film. <laughs> it's too long. It's an amazing film. All right. So um, what else did you work on? What's this on? podcast about anyway? Yeah, just <laughs> me giving Ray a hard time mostly. What um, well, What else did you work on at Criterion? What are some of the other highlights? Did you? Work, I think we talked about some of the uh, – European films? Did you uh, work on any uh, Orson Welles? Um, I, did, I worked a, a little bit on Citizen Kane. And then I also worked on uh, The Great Escape and Bad Day at Black Rock for, with John Sturgis. Wow. wow. So, and that was also... Sorry, the, the Citizen Kane one, is that the one that Peter Bogdanovich did the uh, commentary for? Yeah. I have that somewhere in my garage. When I watched that, <laughs> I had seen Citizen Kane half a dozen times before I saw that. Mm -hmm. When I watched it, and this is, I don't know, 30 years ago, 25 years ago, something, when I watched it with Peter Bogdanovich's commentary, it completely revolutionised my understanding 
of the film because there's just so much in it that as a someone sitting at home watching Citizen Kane, you think, yeah, okay, it's good. It's, I mean, it's, it's good, great performance, blah, 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 great story. But then you, when Peter Bogdanovich, the guy who, for people who don't know, Citizen Kane had kind of disappeared really in public consciousness um, yeah, right. after Hearst had sort of threatened the entire industry not to show mm-hmm. us, yeah. until Peter Bogdanovich was a film student at, in, at New York Film School, I think, or somewhere like that, and he started doing screenings of it at night mm-hmm. uh, and just giving a commentary to, like, five people in a room, other film students. Yeah. And he kind of <laughs> he kind of resurrected its fame. I think it was like in the early late sixties or early seventies, something like that. Before he before he was a famous filmmaker in his own right. Before he made the Last Picture Show yeah. and that sort of stuff. Um, and you know, so he's like a deep, deep. And then then he was really good friends with Orson and wrote a terrific book uh, where yeah. he did interviewed mm-hmm. Orson for years and put it out as a series of transcripts. But yeah, if people haven't seen that, it's mind blowing. Like it totally will change the way you see Citizen Kane. Yeah, I worked on Last Picture Show too, and so I interviewed oh. you know Simple Shepherd oh. and and Bogdanovich, and uh, it's you know he was saying you know he was living with Sybil Shepherd, and 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 Orson was living there too, mm-hmm. and he and he was <laughs> he was saying you know you know Orson when he gets hungry. You know, he just doesn't get a bowl of ice cream. He gets like two gallons of ice cream and starts eating. You know, and then if he's he, he wants a chicken, it's like three chicken seasons. Yeah. <laughs> oh. I've always told my wife that when I'm so rich that she can't afford to divorce me. Yeah. I'm just going full late stage awesome. There you go. Gonna wear gonna yeah. gonna wear a, a caftan, bit like late stage Marlon Brando. Yeah. Like just <laughs> right. chicken, cigars. Booze. It's going to be great. It's going to love it. Looking yeah. forward to it. Peter, but Peter was saying one time, you know, did you smell smoke and symbols? I don't know. There's smoke. So, so Orson had was out in his bathrobe and he had a cigar and he put the cigar in his pocket and just <laughs> didn't think about it. And then he was there and his robe was on fire. So they had to take the, the robe off and put the fire oh, out. Yeah. Oh, that's great. Um, and uh, so uh, did you work with Orson or Bogdanovich on any of those? Uh, just Bogdanovich on right. Last Picture Show. Right. Well, a great director, made, you know, great films. Great actor too. He was in The Sopranos, uh, for people yeah. who haven't seen that, as uh, Tony Soprano's psychiatrist's psychiatrist. Uh, did a great job. <laughs> yeah. Right. Uh, he was in Northern Exposure too. Was he? Oh, I didn't I never really watch much yeah. of that. It was like in the like an early nineties show, right? 80s, 80, 90, yeah. Yeah, right. And it was, you know, this one character in there was a huge like Orson Welles fan, and so he came into town and, anyway, that's a whole other story. So John Sturgis, you said you worked with uh, on some of his films? Yeah, I worked on the, the Great Escape. Wow. So that was a little one too. John was just a prince of a man. Yeah. Just a really, really nice. We became really good friends. I even have his uh, PDA, which says, you know, it's his name, John Sturgis. On there. Wow. <laughs> did you <laughs> I don't know. Did you see Tarantino's film, Once Upon a Time? Oh, yeah, in Hollywood? Yeah. The, sort of the love letter to the great escape in that. I thought he apparently re, right. re like uh like built the whole set, shot all this stuff, uh like really shot a ton of footage. He wanted to re remake the great escape or those scenes from it. That's yeah. fantastic. It's a great film. Wow. 
Yeah, I interviewed uh, Bud Eakins, who did the motorcycle jump. Mm. Oh, really? What was what was what yeah. did the to say? Well, he said, uh, you know, we did a couple of tests where somebody would be holding up a tape, you know, where there were the was going to be height of the barbed wire, and he revved it up, and then Sturgis says, you know, really just give it a kick, you know, make it go, you know, and so he he revs it up and he goes, and he realizes that he's losing control of the motorcycle. And he's just about to come down. He says, he says, you know, I'm not sure I'm going to be able to survive this one. Right. And so, but he gets really lucky. The back end swiggles and then he makes it. So it was really close. Uh, Steve McQueen but the didn't barbed do wire the was actually rubber, rubber bands on the wire. Oh, right. And it wasn't Steve McQueen <laughs> so doing the jump hurt. then. That's uh, no, that was Buddy, Buddy Kins. Uh, that's yeah. ruined the movie for me now. I thought it was really Steve McQueen. <laughs> That's the idea. You're supposed to think it was Steve McQueen. Yeah. 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 Right. I mean, Goldfinger had lots of crazy stuff, too. What's What's the best story from that? Oh, well, one iconic thing was when they're inside the gold depository, they were uh, shooting the countdown, you know, and the, the clock of the nuclear bomb was going down, and and they were going to, uh, uh, oh, and then they had them stop it at like two seconds. He says, no, you can't do it two seconds. It's got to be 007. <laughs> so the, after that, it was always, you know, the time ticking, and then it's become it's that. Nice. And, then, <laughs> and then, you know, I found out from, uh, from you know, uh, that um, Josh, uh, Zero Mostel uh, had, Zero Mostel's, I think, brother, Worked at Fort Knox. He was in charge of the gold depository. Wow! And uh, <laughs> back when they had gold at Fort Knox, man. I said, "Is that really true?" You know, and <clears throat> I ended up meeting um, Josh Mustell, which was his son. I said, "Hey, is it true that you know your uncle worked at uh, at uh, Fort Knox?" He goes, "Oh yeah." <laughs> you know, so and then apparently there was a story about. Uh, um, Hamilton talking to the governor about Fort Knox. He says, is there really, you know, how much gold is in there? And the governor whispers, he says, well, the truth is, there really isn't any gold in there. <laughs> so I don't know if that's true or not. Uh, There's probably a token amount of gold. Right. Wow. <laughs> Great story. We're not on the gold standard yeah, so. anymore. No, yeah. thanks to Richard Nixon. So um, yeah. after Criterion, uh, where did you go there? Where'd you go after that? After Criterion <clears throat> and doing the CD-ROMs, I got uh, recruited to work at a company called Continuum, which was an R&D company uh, started by Bill Gates. And he was looking at imaging and imaging technologies because he was building a house and he was imagining that in his house he'd have these giant flat, sc flat screen displays. Mm -hmm. um, but he also was interested in... Um, digital imagery he was thinking that was the future mm -hmm. and so that that company started collecting a lot of that mm -hmm. uh, and then um let's see what else oh that then because the company the company was named continuum and uh the problem was uh when we were going to produce a product from it there were like 17 companies with that same name so they had to figure out from a legal perspective we've got to change the name so we don't conflict with this other continuum, which was, was also a software company, too. So then we cha they changed the name to Corbis, which is Latin for uh, woven basket. Right. And so 
after I got that part, then they said, we need somebody who can produce a CD-ROM and show why these digital images are going to be, you know, useful and interesting. So, uh, so they gave me a project on a place called the Barnes Foundation. Mm-hmm. I don't know if you've ever heard of it. No. Most people mm-hmm. haven't. But did you know that they're in, in the Barnes Foundation um, in Philadelphia, there are 180 Renoir paintings, more Whoa. than any, anywhere wow. else in the world. There are 50 Cezannes and 50-plus Matisse's, including one of the greatest paintings of Matisse's career, in that place that nobody's ever heard right. of. And so, <laughs> and so my job was to produce a CD-ROM about the Barnes Foundation. And uh, so I did that. I basically did something like a virtual museum where you could take guided tours, you could go up and look at the paintings, you can find out letters and drawings and invoices. I have checkbook stubs from his <laughs> from, from the uh, you know Cezanne's right. dealer. I mean, there's a lot of interesting material there. Then there's also an interactive timeline, so you can sort of understand, like, you know, what paintings were done where and what other events were happening in the time. Uh, it became a just a huge success. I mean, the New York Times and the Wall Street Journal, you know who Walt Mossberg is. I've met Walt. So, yeah, so Walt wrote a column that said this is the greatest CD-ROM of any kind since the beginning of the multimedia revolution. Wow. Whatever that was. That's sad. So, and then the New York Times wrote a piece too. And do you have a do you have a CD drive on your computer? Uh, yeah, I do. I do. I haven't had one for I don't know. Whenever Apple stopped putting them in yeah. their MacBooks, probably ten years ago. Yeah. Do you feel like the, I mean the, the all these things that you created on CD ROM kind of uh, consigned to the dustbin of history? How does that feel? They're like uh, the great manuscripts from ancient Rome sitting on the floors of monasteries in the Middle Ages somewhat. Yeah, it is disappointing. I mean, um, I made Mac versions of these titles as well. The The problem with the Mac was that in, in I think in 2099, uh, Steve Jobs says, look, OS 9 is dead. We don't want to do any backwards compatibility. So all the stuff we did before doesn't work. But Microsoft being, we have to make sure that everything's backward compatible for at least a decade. Mm. And so the stuff that I have still works, Mm -hmm. but it doesn't necessarily need to come off of a CD. It can come off of a thumb drive and you can have all of them, you know. Right. So uh, uh, is that a thing now? Can you get those products on a thumb drive? Do you know if they've been repurposed? No, they've, they've stopped. Um, they've stopped that as Corbis's business. Mm. So it's unfortunate. Yeah, I mean, the, a passion for art um, ended up. Um, it was sold at the Barnes Foundation, and people had heard about it all over the world, and so they had this gigantic list of people that would want to be on the list if they were ever to provide a new version. And so they asked us if we would make uh, an updated version of it, kind of like George Lucas, right? So I had an opportunity to make it 16-bit audio and, you know, high, you know, high bit rate uh, imagery, because we, we had 256 colors, which were an adaptive palette, which kind of sucked. Mm-hmm. And then we had higher resolution and Full stereo sound at good resolution. Red wash off first this time. <clears throat> <laughs> yeah. 
lick his film check. Um, <laughs> yeah, it's it's. So, I mean, it's um, yeah. it's sad in a way. Like as I said earlier, in the early '90s, CD-ROMs were this incredibly exciting, redefining yes. medium that was so powerful. Like Encarta could put Encyclopedia Britannica out of business, but um, you know, it's it's time in the sun. Thanks to technology moving on, was actually relatively short. I guess, you know, a couple of decades mm-hmm. and CD-ROMs are just like, I've got 20-year-old sons. I'm sure they've never <laughs> seen a CD-ROM and Slid wouldn't know what in. to do with one right. today if you gave them one. Yeah. <laughs> it's a coaster. <laughs> yeah. Exactly. So you're at Continuum slash Corbus and uh, Bill Gates buys the Codex Leicester. Lester. 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 <laughs> I did it again. The Codex <laughs> Lester. Uh, t- so when was that? Well, 90, 93, something like that? 94. 94. And uh, tell us what the Codex Lester is. It's a 72-page um, notebook by Leonardo da Vinci on the earth, the water, and the heavens. And I first heard of that back in 1980. And at that time, there were no Leonardos in the United States. And so... Apparently, this notebook had been purchased by Armand Hammer, who was the president of Occidental Petroleum. And he, I think he paid $5 million for it. And uh, he was also on the board of the L.A. County Museum of Art. And so I thought, oh, here's a chance to go see something by Leonardo. And so I went to the museum, and I remember seeing the first folio of it, and it was a complete mystery because there the, the was the mirror script, and I didn't even know what language it was. It turns out, of course, it was Italian mirror script. And uh, they had all these crazy cryptic drawings on there, and I didn't know what it was about. And there was no interpretive material at all. It was just there. Yeah. And, yeah, it was just there. And Did- so I was pretty disappointed. And so when uh, 1994 comes around, I see it here in the news. Bill Gates buys the Codex Lester. I thought, oh. So I got busy and put together a proposal. Um, and basically, it's uh, what I would do if I owned the Codex Lester. Right. So I fire up an email to Bill. And, uh, you know, uh, the next morning, I get back an email from him. And it was, I think it was like 2 in the morning or 2.30 in the morning that he wrote three words, which is, go do it. <laughs> And that was the beginning. Wow. And so it's time to, then I had to figure out how to pull a team together because, you know, typically scholars are busy doing research and writing on some specific topic and they've been doing it for a few years at least. And then, you know, they're busy. They're not, you can't just say, hey, can you come and write this thing? And so, um, <laughs> So we, um, I, I was trying to find who the best Leonardo scholars in the world were. And that took some time because uh, I went through a number of the different museums at the National Gallery and then in uh, National Gallery of London and Philadelphia Museum and others. And, you know, many of the people have said, you know, the guy you need to see is Martin Kemp. Mm-hmm. And he's from Oxford. And so it took a little while. Uh, maybe a few months, but I did manage to connect with Martin, and we sat down for lunch and talked about the project, and I showed him the proposal that I had sent to Bill. 
and I asked him if he was interested in joining the project. And uh, he read through it and he thought, hmm, yeah, he, he decided he wanted to be part of it. And then from there, we uh, looked for um, several other scholars, Paolo Galuzzi, uh, Pietro Morani, uh, several others. Um, there was one scholar who uh, was a renowned uh, expert on Leonardo and the Codex Lester. And his name was, uh, his name is Carlo Pedretti. Pedretti. And he's, he's been known as a scholar of Leonardo for a long time. Mm -hmm. And so um, I decided I would reach out to him. He was kind of hard to get. But I managed to send, get his fax number and I sent him a fax. And uh, so I sent him this fax and then... Uh, Nothing happens for a day or two or three. <clears throat> Excuse me. I get a fax back from, from him. And it's, it was pretty brief. And pretty much what he said was, the only way I will work with you is if Bill Gates flies over my villa in Vinci and drops big bags of money on me. Is that the same thing? That was it. Right. I'm guessing that did not happen. Well, that sounds like a reasonable request. I think so. Yeah. 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 So he actually lived yeah. in a villa in Vinci. Let's not brush over that part. But that's pretty cool. Yeah. 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 Uh, and what was, and, and that was like uh, an indication that he wasn't really that interested in working for Bill. Do you know why? Why was he antagonistic towards working with Bill? Well, I think at the time there were a lot of people that were doing things uh, Leonardo esque on CD-ROMs or other things, and they're all pretty much junk. There was no real scholarship with any of it. Right. And um, so, you know, I, it took a while. I never really heard from him again, and then um, I didn't know why. But it, but ironically, one of my, the producer, the co-producer on the project, because I was executive producer, was, um, was um, Melanie Goldstein. And Melanie had a roommate in college and that woman's uh, job was actually a research assistant to, to a Padretti which was like wow what are the odds, what are the odds? <laughs> it's fate so amazingly she was able to persuade him that we were doing something of, of merit and it wasn't just a hack job like many many of the others were so ultimately uh he was kind of interested, but I couldn't get the uh, transcription of the Codex Lester from him. So I figured out, I mean, I wanted to make a translator, and to, be, to make a translator, you need to have uh, a translation of it as well as the transcription. And that was hard to find. And so it took me um, a while to, to get to that point. I, I went to um, um, a publisher in Milan, and it's a very well-known publisher. It's called Junti, uh, who's been there for, I think, 500 years. And um, they produced these beautiful, amazing facsimiles of uh, Leonardo manuscripts. So they had one for the Codex Lester. That was about $25,000. And there was a transcription and a translation of that that came with the facsimile. Mm. And uh, so I went to Milan and 
met the president of Junti, and I, you know, talked to him and asked him if I could license the transcription and translation that that they had. And he was very polite. He says, "No, you know, that belongs to Pedretti, and and I can't relicense it to you." And I thought, "Oh, good, too bad," because uh, now I'm not sure what I can do because I really wanted to do the translator. That to me was like the the whole core of it. Mm-hmm. Um, so I had a problem for a while. I wasn't sure how much further we could go without that. Um, but then uh, later on, I discovered that there was a original translation and transcription that was done in 1909 by a gentleman by name of Calvi. And it turns out that the Calvi manuscript was something that Pedretti used, and he tweaked that for his version of it. Mm-hmm. Um, so we ended up using that, which was, which was helpful. But uh, after, uh, when, after I met with the uh, president of, of Junti, he said, well, you know, when Bill purchased the Codex Lester, I sent him one of our $25,000 facsimiles, and uh, I was wondering if you could tell me if he received it, because I haven't, I haven't heard from him about it. So I thought, hmm, I don't know, but I can go look. <laughs> so I went to uh, Bill's assistant who uh, uh, at, at Microsoft and asked her, hey, have you seen a box that's about, I don't know, four inches high, 12 inches wide, and like 18 inches tall, and weighs about maybe five or 10 pounds. <laughs> and she says, no, I haven't seen anything like that. So uh, I said, mm, you know, if uh, I can check the archive in case it got sent to the Microsoft archive, and turns out it wasn't there either. And uh, so then I went back to uh, Bill's assistant. I said, you know, I'm, I don't know what happened to it, but, uh, you know, do you think it might be anywhere else? She says, well, it might be at the house. If you want to go root around in the house, you can go and, you know, I'll make arrangements and you can go to the house and go look and see if you can find it. <laughs> so, uh, so I did that. And, uh, so you're rummaging around Bill Gates's house did you, in the middle of the day. Did you get lost at any point? Uh, <laughs> uh this is, this, this was oh. a different house than his current. Okay. The old house. So yeah. it was, it was modest <laughs> and not very, very nice. Um, but, um, Let's see what happened after that. Oh, so I was in the basement. <laughs> so it's kind of dark there. And I'm looking around and I see a box in the corner. And uh, I wasn't sure what it was. It was kind of more like a crate. And uh, I go up and look at it kind of close. And I see on the side, it's, it's a wooden crate. On the side, it's stenciled and it says Christie's. I thought, no, can't be. <laughs> Here in the basement, so I uh, go and oh, take the the top of the crate off, and there's all these uh, sheets of lucite, you know. And I pull one of them up, and I go, "Hmm, that's Italian." <laughs> <laughs> and then I'm looking at it, but it can't be the comics. I'm looking at it, and looking at it, I realize at the very edges of the paper, it's bright white. So I go, "Oh." It's a facsimile that was probably used at Christie's for the people that were mm. wanting to buy the codex mm. 
could see what it looked like. I thought you were going to say in the box you found the spaceship that Bill arrived to Earth on or in or something like that or clone you found cloned bodies of him yeah. in the background there or something like that. Oh. You said you told me uh, you also found a Macintosh in his house. Oh, yeah. I think it was a Mac Plus or something like that. Right. But, you know, Bill Bill is really interested in, in user interface and things like that. Mm-hmm. So he was probably, you know, comparing mm. that kind of thing. Breaking it down. Can I, and there was a lot of Windows software that ran on the Mac too. So he was probably yeah, testing that stuff. Yeah, multi-plan. <laughs> Curtis, can I? Can I ask real quick? So, 1994, you know, after Bill Gates buys us, you get involved. Did you have an affinity for Leo before then? Had you studied him? Uh, was he somebody that was a part of your life or a hobby or whatever? Or did that kind of come later with appreciation doing this project? Um, I was just curious about it in 1980 when I okay. first saw it. But, you know, I'm not a scholar, but I was just kind of curious about what it really meant. There was no real good opportunity to uh, have mere mortals understand it. Mm-hmm. And so that was what the project was intended gotcha. to do. Mm-hmm. It would allow anybody to be able to look at the codex, read a translation in mm-hmm. English, mm-hmm. and uh, also get an interpretation from Martin Kemp and the other scholars, mm-hmm. as well as uh, stories about, from, about Leonardo from, you know, growing up in his life and how he thought about nature mm-hmm. and, you know, water and light and a number of things. And then we also had a uh, a timeline and we also had a gallery that was designed by Leonardo but never built. So in that virtual gallery, we would have like uh, rooms with paintings. So you could compare the version of the rocks from the Louvre and the National Gallery together. You can see a room with documents where you can see Leonardo's birth certificate, right. uh, other documents, uh, just a wide variety of material that was on that CD. So there's no longer an excuse Someone can't say like you, oh, before I really, it really wasn't accessible. Now because of this, they can more than access Leonardo and his notebooks. Gotcha. Yes. So you, the uh, $25,000 facsimile that Junti sent to Bill right. ever turn up? Sh- should we go look for it? Never turned up. Somebody's got it somewhere. Someone in US Post <laughs> has got this amazing <laughs> Da Vinci yeah. book. In their basement. At their yeah. house. Yeah. It's probably on eBay somewhere, <laughs> you know. I think they're serially numbered, so they probably know. Yeah. Somebody has their hand on yeah. it. So figure it out. Um, so I, I, in the year 2000, Bill came to Sydney for the Olympics. And while he was in the country, the codex was being displayed at the Powerhouse Museum in Sydney. We had a big event there. It was like a VIP um, event. I hosted a table. We had the local CEO of Netflix on my table. Not Netflix, Netscape, sorry, on my table. Netscape. Less impressed now. (laughs) Oh, hey, dude, in the day, (laughs) Netscape was the Netflix of the day. Netscape was awesome. (laughs) Yeah, yeah. Uh, The the CEO of Yahoo, all of these people were on my table. and, um, And we had, there was like a big... Uh, you know, interactive display. You walked around the museum, big screens where you could scroll like a mouse or some sort of device over. So you'd see the original and you'd scroll over to do the translation. So that was a, a continuation of the work that you started. Is that correct? Right. They probably just used that software, the Codescope, from the CD-ROM. 
think the page is. Codoscope, that's what you called it? Yeah. That's great. I invented that name along with the device. It's like CinemaScope, <laughs> but for the codex. Yeah. <laughs> I'm impressed. I'm impressed. Yeah, that's great. Yeah. Well, that much, so um, you ended up getting this Calvi uh, translation as well as a transcription from his mm -hmm. work. Right. And then... Yeah. And then uh, how long did it take you to put all of that together into a CD-ROM? That must have been an incredible project. Yeah, I mean, it was um, a little over a year. It was a lot of lot of hard work. Wow. And today, but, uh, how do people view that? Is that accessible somewhere? Um, the CD-ROM still works on Windows, but it's not for sale anymore. Yeah. But if you can find... Uh, the files you can run it on Windows. Right, still runs on Windows 10 and all the other ones before. So you'd have to go to <laughs> eBay and try and get a right. secondhand copy of it or a garage sale, maybe or something. Know. Yeah, well, they, they were they were selling pretty hot a few years after. Yeah, because they were hard. Right, and uh, so can can you talk us through? what you know about Bill's motivation for buying the Codex in the first place? What, why, why did he do that? Um, in the introduction of the CD, there's a, Bill does a little uh, bit about why Leonardo. So it's basically, he's curious about, you know, how he thought and why he did what he did. Was Bill a, a, a big fan of Leonardo before the acquisition? Um, yes. Right. Because I think, um, when the Codex was up at auction, Bill was, uh, he's very diplomatic. He was meeting with um, the head of the largest bank in Italy. And uh, they were having lunch. And uh, Bill was telling the guy, um, you know, I hear that the Codex Lester is up for an auction. And... Uh, he said, I, I know the Codex has not been back to Italy for a very long time. And uh, that um, if he was successful in winning the bid for it, that what he would do is he would return it to Italy and exhibit it at major museums in Italy. Right. Which he did. So if Armand Hammer owned it, where was it being kept Armand Hammer was American. Where was it being yeah. kept? Um, he had it for a few years, but um, oh, right. LACMA had it, LA County Museum, had it when they exhibited and probably had it back in his office. Right. I read a biography on Armand Hammer 25, 30 years ago. Um, for people who don't know, he was uh, he was an incredible guy in his own right. When he was a very young man, I think when he was like 21, it was around about the time of the Russian Revolution, and he mm -hmm. sailed ships full of medical supplies to Moscow or, well, to, to Russia, um, would deliver the medical supplies and other things they needed and then have an empty ship and uh, Lenin, uh, the Politburo would just say, well, what do you want in return? We can't pay you. And he would say, well, just give me all of the artwork of the czars. So they would give him 
Russian eggs and uh, paintings wow. and everything because they had no use for it. And he'd go, great. And he'd just fill up his boat. He's like 21. He'd fill up his boat with <laughs> priceless <laughs> artworks and sell them back to America. Uh, made himself his first million, I think, in the process. Uh, so that was 1918, 1919, yeah. something like that. Incredible guy. Um, okay, so you did the Da Vinci Project uh, with Bill. What What did you do after that? You end, I know you ended up at Microsoft Research. So I joined Microsoft Research in '98, but in '97, um, I was invited to give a TED talk. So I did a talk on Leonardo, and I showed the codex uh, CD-ROM with the codescope, and and then I showed the reverse mirror script, and then I flipped it so that if you knew Italian, you might be able to read it, and then I punched it into English, and then there was a spontaneous standing ovation by the entire crowd at TED, which was something else. Yeah, fantastic. Because back then, it, it wasn't like you didn't have a zillion TEDx's everywhere. It was just the TED conference. Yeah. Must have been the very early days of TED, too, I think, back then, right? It started in the mid-'90s. Well, the, um, it was before that. Right. Early. Very early. Yeah, I think 82 or 83 or really? something like that. Oh, wow. goes yeah. back that far. And, but oh. they weren't every year. They were mm. sporadically mm. Uh, separated by now. I think TED was still alive back then, too. He was there at the first one, right? <laughs> You're funny, man. I know. I'm hilarious. Yeah. yeah. Well known for being hilarious. Okay. Well, that's that's an <laughs> that's an incredible, an incredible uh, 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 experience. Must have been. And yeah. So the rest of the uh, Da Vinci Codex codices uh, were similar things done with those. Did you start? something that everyone else picked up and ran with? Did they all get that sort of loving treatment? Um, no, because um, like the Codex Arundel is an example. The Codex Lester is 72 pages. <clears throat> and uh, the, the Codex Arundel is like 550 pages. So that that is never exhibited. So, you know, there's for all of these manuscripts, there is a finite amount of time they can be exposed to light. Uh So for every amount of time that they're exposed, they have to go into a dark place for X number of times Uh um, to keep them Mm. from fading. Ray's very much similar. He needs to – we need to keep him in a dark room. I'm overdue right now, actually, so if we (laughs) can <laughs> it's not for his benefit, no, though. It's for it's our for benefit. The, we keep we keep him in a dark room. So. It's the rest of the world. So yes, yeah. that's a that's a bit of a tragedy, though, isn't it? Like we we yeah. should be able to access high res digital versions of all of these things to really understand what's going on in them. I'm surprised that in the what is it nearly 30 years since you worked on the Codex Lester, people haven't found the opportunity to give the others a similar treatment. Um, I don't like with the uh, Arundel. I don't think there has ever been a transcription or a translation. Wow. It's just too much work. There aren't that many Leonardo scholars to do it. Uh, Fine. We'll do it. But it's just Italian and mirror skipped, right? You don't have to be a Leonardo scholar to reverse the Italian and translate it. 
You guys ought to try it. You, know? you never know. Fine. I'm learning Italian at the moment, See? so you know, give me a couple of years. There you go. Oh. No, you're a Renaissance guy yeah. now. Yeah. Where's uh, Where's Codex Arundel? Is that uh, in London? That's in the British Library. You uh, originally that was uh, originally that was in the Royal Society, uh, and they uh, loaned it to the British Library. I, I heard. And then uh, they really kind of regret it because they didn't get it back. <laughs> yeah, I've loaned things to the British uh, Royal Library as well. It's Don't the same sort of a deal. Yeah. yeah. Um, I know that you got the opportunity to see it, though, some years ago. Tell us that story. Oh, I don't know if I should tell that story. Oh, really? Okay. <laughs> That's up to you. It's a great story, though. No? Yeah. Okay. Uh, I'll tell it to you in private. Off air. Off air. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> so uh, you gave the TED Talk in 97. You started working at Microsoft Research in 98, uh, and you were there for many, many years. I think you just retired. Was it a few years ago? Mm-hmm. Yep. Tell us about the highlights of your, your work at Microsoft Research. Um, one of the things I – I mean, I did a lot of um, – media-related things when I was in research, and not many people were doing that. <clears throat> Most people were working on more core technologies. Um, but I also like more at the higher part of the stack and working on applications that people actually um, get to use and, and hopefully love. And, th- you know, those two aspects are things that I, I like to do when I'm, when I'm making things. So... Uh, um, we had a lot of freedom in Microsoft Research, and I always had this dream when I was a little kid that I would have a gigantic telescope and I'd have a famous astronomer next to me sort of explaining what we were looking at. And, uh, you know, I was never able to kind of do that, but in research I thought, you know, there at the, at in like 2005, there was something called the Sloan Digital Sky Survey, which started to map a large section of the sky at very high resolution. And one of the things I want, I needed if I was going to build that dream is to have a large all-sky image of the night sky. And uh, uh, an astronomer at Johns Hopkins uh, was uh, working on, on that. Um, and his name is Alex Sally. And he worked with a guy... Um, at Microsoft Research. And so I realized that very soon we would have the ability to have this incredibly high resolution view of the night sky. And, you know, with the same kind of technology that, you know, we're used to now in terms of like uh, Bing Maps and Google Earth and stuff like that, you know, that if I could do that with the sky, that would be really kind of cool. Because then if you wanted to see anything, just to, you you'd get the context of it because you could zoom in on something that would be really, 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 really far away. And uh, so the folks, when I showed the prototype to the folks at the American Astronomical Society, a lot of the astronomers said, God, that's really a cool idea. And if you do this, we'd like to help. And so because of that, I ended up getting all these astronomers who were willing to be a part of that project. And... um, Everybody that had data contributed to to our project. So, you know, the visible light view of the night sky and worldwide telescope is a trillion pixel image. Wow. Oh, my goodness. 
but you can zoom in to any part of like the center of the Orion Nebula mm. and see a solar system forming. You know, it's that high resolution. Wow. So that's just visible light. And then there's 85 other different <clears throat> spectral bands. <clears throat> Excuse me. 85 spectral bands that uh, cover the sky as well. On top of that, we have other imagery from the Hubble. So you can transition from the night sky view, get the entire context of the sky, and go zoom right into the center of that. Or you could do AB on any wavelength. You can look at something that looks odd and visible, but when you see an X-ray, it's, oh, that's a supernova remnant, things like that. And then since we had the imagery, which all these different astronomers and people's surveys were bringing into this, we thought, wow, we'll bring data behind it so that you can, I can pick any galaxy in the large-scale structure of the universe because I kind of know where it is. I can just right-click on it and boom, I can pull out all the information, the spectra, you know, chemical composition of that galaxy from wherever it is. And, it, and this idea is a simple framework, but then the American Astronomical Society, which manages um, all the astrophysical research for the world, glommed onto its people too. They wanted to be a part of it as well because it, 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 it's so logical just to be able to point at anywhere and then find all the data behind that area that you're looking at. It's kind of a, a no-brainer. Wow. And that's the Worldwide Telescope. How do we uh, get a look at that? We just... That's all, all it's worldwidetelescope.org. It's free. It's the best universe simulator that exists in the universe. So you, so you made the universe. <laughs> That's a good tagline. You, you, it's pretty good. You made the universe accessible like you made uh, the codex accessible. Thank you. Thank exactly. You. Yeah. So that kids can create guided tours. Astronomers can create guided right. tours. You know, mm. There's media in there. It's people telling stories about That's the sky. Yeah. A, a number of years ago, I had the opportunity to chat with Vince Cerf, Curtis, and, and I was asking Vint about, uh, you know, the simulation theory, uh, that the universe is a simulation in a computer because he was one of the uh, uh, inspirations for the architect in the Matrix films. And he uh, he 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 kind of uh, uh, refuted the, the idea that he is the architect of uh, the Matrix, but you know, that's yet to be seen. Um, I'm not sure I fully believed him, but it sounds to me like you're also creating universes inside of uh, computers. Have you ever thought that uh, we might be in a simulated universe ourselves? No, no, no. A friend of mine is John Gator. I'll have to ask him. John Gator. Gator. He was a video effects supervisor for the Matrix films. Oh, okay. Nice. Yes, I have yeah. heard that now. Right. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> see what he thinks. It might be just yeah. you and Vince Cerf. I think uh, somewhere uh, coding the universe. You've got for much the rest more of cloud this. than I do. <laughs> right. Well, yeah. the two of you together would be a good combination. <laughs> so, what are you doing today? You've retired uh, from Microsoft Research. What are you devoting your energies to these days, Curtis? Oh, something completely different. I mean, I, I'm on the board of the um, History Museum here in Seattle, and um, one of the projects I'm doing is um, my dad uh, was in World War II, uh, and he was a U.S. soldier and uh, as part of something called the U.S. Occupation of Japan, where 
General MacArthur was basically the emperor of Japan. Uh-huh. And um, so my dad was part of the Signal Corps, and he shot a lot of pictures, hundreds of pictures of people and places and everything during that time of the occupation. So I'm working with um, the museum for an exhibition on that in the fall. We'll see how that goes. And um, Bill Gates's father was also in Japan at that same time. So he he has some letters uh, that he would write home right. from being stationed up there. Wow. But his is a, a different kind of story than uh, my dad's story. Well, Ray uh, hosts the most popular World War II podcast on the planet yeah. called The History of World War II Podcast. Yeah. It's a very creative name. <laughs> And Ray and I together host a podcast on the Cold War where Mm. we're breaking down, you know, moment by moment the Cold War. I think we're currently doing the the early years of the CIA, so that's where we're up to. Which has been fascinating. Yeah, you should uh, you should come come on those shows, and we can talk to you about that at some point. That'd be fascinating. Absolutely. Sounds good when I get all my material yes. together. Yeah. I spent the pandemic digitizing hundreds of these negatives. So. Right. So you haven't been And wasting. when you digitize something, uh, I'm sure it's uh, very well digitized. Yes. You're the world's expert on uh, <laughs> digitizing things. <laughs> the best. And what are you doing with regards to Da Vinci these days? Are you uh, doing any Da Vinci work? Um, oddly enough that you mentioned it, there, the muse, History Museum is going to have a um, Leonardo exhibition later in the later in the fall. So I'll, I'll be helping them on that. And then uh, for the past six years, Martin Kemp and Domenico Lorenzo, one of the other scholars, we've been working on the Codex Lester about new information related to the Codex. So there are a few new discoveries that... Uh, have come up from the research over the past five years. Nice. Anything you can share with us, or is it uh, under wraps? Um, why don't I save it for the next time we talk? So, the History Museum in Seattle, I don't think I know that. I've, I've been to Paul Allen's uh, Rock and Roll Museum, the, the Gary mm. Building, which is fantastic. Uh, where, where's the History Museum? It's on Lake Union. It's called the Museum of History and Industry, Mohai. Okay. Well, I'll uh, uh, if uh, if we're ever allowed to travel overseas again, I'll um, have <laughs> we're to, allowed to have travel. to come back. Yeah. My wife. Yeah, I'll get you a check. My wife lived in Seattle for ten years before moving here, and and I've been there many times. Uh, so it's a place we love, and we're always looking for an excuse to get back. Well, you can get back here and we can hang out. That would be cool. Although our prime minister said uh, yesterday that he can't see us, uh, can't see him allowing Australians to travel overseas for a long time yet. Our borders are going to remain Isn't closed. Is that what you're going to? Yeah, yeah. Mm. They don't want you to bring back anything. No, no. He, he's. Uh, we're very. Um, we're happy with the fact that we don't have any coronavirus in this country, and we'd like to keep it that way yeah. for as long as possible. Yeah. Good call. Yeah. Well, Curtis, yeah. um, that's been a, a, an amazing. I feel like uh, your career is like five careers <laughs> all stitched together. It's uh, yes. yes, it's a bit. An, it's an amazing story so far, and obviously, it's uh, not finished yet. Right. Thank you so much for coming on and telling us all those stories. It's fascinating. <laughs> Thank you for having me on. It's been a blast. 
Ray, yeah. do you have any final uh, comments or questions? Just, just one. Quiet. Just one. Uh, in 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 order to get ready for the show, I was looking at all your videos, uh, any articles, and and uh, the codex in general, and I got something I think that helped me. I got it from you. Uh, that helped me understand Leonardo better than I have so far. And we've done a pretty, we've done a, a several shows on him. But what it came down to for me is that we're all impressed that Leonardo is good at a lot of different things, or he's good at figuring out things, whatever. But it, but I really couldn't figure out why. I just thought maybe he was born that way. But I was watching one of your videos, and you said something, and I'm going to paraphrase: um, science is knowledge, knowledge is observation. And when you observe the world, you'll realize it's all interconnected. If you get the general understanding of the body, you get the general understanding of how the world works. And if you get the general understanding of that with all its internal systems, you can get the universe. And so for, and for me, right. I mean, I, I get Leonardo because there was no difference between natural science and art. It was all a part of the mm -hmm. same thing. And when you think of it like that. Exactly. Of course, you can dabble in everything because it's all interconnected. And I just wanted to thank you for right. that. That helped me a lot. You can thank, you can thank Leonardo. You and me. Leonardo. But yes, I just, they gave me a perspective that, that I really enjoyed learning that. Thank you. That's great. Yeah, it's nice to have that high order bit that sort of helps figure out everything exactly. else. Exactly. But, and just to wrap up, you know, give us your. Um, Quick take on Leonardo from the years that you've spent uh, learning about him, studying his work, his life. How would you uh, how would you explain why today, five hundred odd years after he died, we're still so fascinated with Da Vinci? It's, it's hard to encapsulate it in any anything small, but basically, he was like such an uh, you know OCD person. Right. Yeah. Which is you know, today, it's like so obsessive and compulsive mm. that if it wasn't perfect, he would just like, just, you know, go crazy and have to like either give it up mm -hmm. or then he would like work on it some more and think, oh, maybe I can, you know, make a little change and make it good enough. I don't know. He mm. was always like going crazy over not, it not being good enough. Mm. I think some of that may have something to do, you know, when when a kid's an orphan. Mm -hmm. He wasn't. He wasn't an orphan, though. Really, he was just. He wasn't an he was orphan, a bastard. But, you know, he was a bastard, and uh, he, he his his education was basically wandering around out, outside in nature and observing everything mm -hmm. very very closely. So. Wow. Yeah, we've talked we've talked about this before on our show and with Matthew Landris. I mean, we're very lucky. I think that he was born out of wedlock if he had been a legitimate child to his father he probably would have ended up as a notary and the world wouldn't have yeah. leonardo da vinci right yeah but you know if he did that become a notary he would hate it yes <laughs> i wouldn't want him working for no no yeah <laughs> yeah and and the notebooks it seems to me that his major accomplishment really are the notebooks. There are not many paintings, particularly completed yeah. paintings, and the ones that he did complete are astounding. And, uh, you know, we talked with Matthew mm -hmm. Landris a lot about the um, Last Supper and uh, it, it's 
it was a little bit like the Citizen Kane of, of uh, paintings in that it broke a lot of new ground that yeah. other people picked up and ran with, some of which obviously he had, he had learned from Masaccio and people like that. But, you know, he, had, uh, he took it to a whole new level. And the Mona Lisa and Sfumato and things like that. But the, the notebooks, we have 20 paintings, maybe 21 if Salvatore Mundi is uh, a real painting. But we have <laughs> how many thousands of pages of uh, notebooks? Mm-hmm. So, um, oh, yeah, but, you know, most of them are lost. Of what? He, so the ones that we have, uh, isn't all of it? No, that's only like probably 30, 40%. Really? I thought that after he died, we told the story the other day that I think I read in Walter Isaacson's book, you know, after he died, the notebooks were shuffled around and then eventually the son of a lawyer, you know, cut them up and sort of tried to put them in some sort of order. Did he only have 40% or did he have 100% and 60% have been lost since then? I mean, I think that's unknown. Right. But they do know that there were a certain amount of manuscripts and a significant portion of them were lost or, you know, they might have been destroyed. You you don't really know. But in in some of the research that my scholar Domenico had found, he um, found something that had been lost. It was in an archive for several hundred years. And so those are the kind of things where, you know, it might still exist. We just don't know where it is. It's like we were telling... No, but somebody misfiled it, yeah. basically. You know, that's that's always the problem. We were telling the story recently about uh, his his unfinished painting of St. Jerome, St. Jerry, as we call him, mm-hmm. uh, which I think Napoleon's, Napoleon's uncle found it as part of a... Some of it was part of a tabletop. It had been uh, (laughs) turned into just, yeah, Yeah. the things that uh, people didn't value back then. Well, Napoleon grabbed a lot of souvenirs in his his travels. He's a collector. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, we told uh, that story recently too. Yeah. Napoleon. Well, Napoleon, uh, he was... Thought he'd take better care of it. What, what was his line that we quoted the other day? Every every person of genius is, is French, French, no matter where they were born. <laughs> and Napoleon well, wasn't even French; he was Corsican. But, so it's okay. Uh, anyway, right. yeah. <laughs> All right, we'll let you go. Thank yeah. you so much, Curtis. And I hope we can get you back on to talk about some of these other things that you're working on. Some of our other shows. We're going to talk to you again. And, okay, uh, sounds fun. Give my best to Buzz the next time you uh, talk to him. I will. Thanks a lot, guys. Cheers, mate. It's been a pleasure. Thank you so much. Bye. Bye-bye. Bye. Bye.